Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a real Canadian spy story. I speak with author and former CSIS officer Andrew Kirsch. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. Going to do things a little bit different on this program. Every now and then a book comes along that I feel just a little 10-minute interview at the end of a show is not enough to delve into. And I want to take a little bit of time with it, with the author. And I wanted to do that today. I read a couple of weeks ago a book called I Was Never Here, My True Canadian Spy Story of coffees, code names, and covert operations in the age of terrorism. It's written by Andrew Kirsch, who is not just a, a former CSIS officer, but also a former fellow political candidate, and he now runs a security consulting firm, so he does lots of great stuff. And interestingly enough, CSIS, I, I've always had an interest in intelligence and law enforcement and security because I'm a bit of a nerd like this, but CSIS is not an organization or an agency that is all that well-known by Canadians. I think a lot of people would shrug their shoulders and say, you know, see what? See, like Canada doesn't have a spy agency, or if we do, it's not one that does anything. And it does do a lot, and they have had a very critical role to play in several incidents that have come up. But as always, Canada tends to live in the shadow of the United States and other countries around the world. And the book does, I think, an interesting job of, of talking about Andrew's own experiences going through this, but also the role that CSIS plays in Canada. And I thought it was an interesting read and thought perhaps you might believe that as well. So it's my great privilege to talk to Andrew Kirsch, former CSIS officer and now author of the book, I Was Never Here, My True Canadian Spy Story of coffees, code names, and covert operations in the age of terrorism. Uh, Andrew, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. This is, I think, a fascinating book for a number of reasons that we'll get into, but I, I think the existence of the book itself is unique because, as I understand it, and you talked about this in the book a little bit, no one else who's gone through what you went through working for CSIS has done this, has written about that experience, whereas I can just name off the top of my head like five books from former CIA officers in the United States. Well, it seems like there's a, a bunch of books a week from CIA, FBI, and no, we haven't had uh, some a CSIS book from somebody who worked at CSIS about the experience of working for CSIS. There have been books that have come out, uh, policy books or people commenting uh, on uh, said public policy or threats, but not about the experience itself, like what it's like to work uh, at CSIS and be a Canadian spy. Why was it that you wrote the book? Because I, I got from you talking about it that there was a little bit of a catharsis and wanting to unpack your experiences of being there and, and living through this for a number of years. But it also seemed like you wanted to promote, if that's the right word, the organization itself, or at least demystify the organization. Well, I, uh, I said, I hope the book uh, was not intended to talk anybody into or out of working there, but it was to talk about my experience. And when I signed up, uh, in 2005 and looked into you know, what, uh, what it would be like, there's nothing out there. Uh, and I get, now that I'm out and I'm public about it, I get asked a lot of questions from people who are applying, interested, have no idea that Canada has spies about what it is and, and, and what they do. And I can tell you from my experience when I was knocking on doors every day, and I write about this in the book, and I say, hello, my name is Andrew and I'm here from CSIS and I need your help. Like no one has any idea uh, what this is, what it does, uh, why we're there, what we want. Um, and so I, I just felt like it's, it's important more people know about it. 
one for the, the folks who are applying and want to know what they're getting themselves into when they run away and join the circus, uh, and also from the Canadians who are being asked for help and, and or who might be aware of concerns. Like, this is what we're worried about. This is the people, these are the people who are worried about it. Uh, and it's okay to help them. Like they're real people. So let's actually strip it down to the basics for people. What is CSIS? And to engage in that longstanding Canadian pastime of comparisons with the U.S., how does it differ from American intelligence and law enforcement agencies that Canadians are probably more familiar with? Well, that's that's it. We often get compared, and it's not a, a great comparison. So we have the Canadian Security Intelligence Service is Canada's domestic security service, and it is mandated to investigate threats to the security of Canada, and there are four threats and they are espionage and sabotage, uh, foreign influence activities, terrorism, and subversion. And so we're closely compared to the CIA, but it's, it's not a, a great comparison. The CIA operates abroad, whereas Canada, we are a domestic a service. And then they say, well, you must be the FBI, but the FBI is law enforcement and will bring charges. And that is more aligned with our RCMP. So we're closer to the British model, which is a foreign intelligence service, the, the MI6, you know, uh, James Bond running around, and MI5, which operates domestically, Mossad uh, and Shin Bet, and Australia has ASIO and ASIS. So we're in that model, but we don't have a foreign service. That's the big difference, is that we only have a domestic uh, security service, not a foreign intelligence service. And and even then, the domestic service is relatively young in Canada. A lot of this all used to be done under the banner of the RCMP within that law enforcement purview. That's right. That's right. So this all came about kind of shortly after the War Measures Act in, uh, in the problems in the, in the 70s, where the RCMP was responsible for law enforcement and uh, intelligence. And the decision was made uh, to separate those functions in the 80s, early 80s, to create a domestic security service, which was a separate function from uh, from law enforcement, following the RCMP getting into some trouble, uh, and the McDonald's Commission was was uh, was struck, and they said, you know, we want to take away some of those responsibilities uh, from the RCMP. So you you mentioned knocking on doors. The earlier part of the book is really about your experience starting out as an intelligence officer, and I, it was interesting. I never really thought about what that role was, but a lot of it is not clandestine. It's not covert. It's you just going to the door and waving a badge in the air and saying, hey, I'm with CSIS. Let's talk. And I, the badge didn't have your real name, but still, you were remarkably transparent to people about what you were doing and what you wanted from them. It's, it's a very unique experience being a Canadian spy because you're working, and I'd say I'm, I'm working 15 minutes from where I, I'm from Toronto. I'm working in Toronto, 15 minutes, 20 minutes from where I grew up. I'm knocking on a door, and I have a badge, and it says CSIS. That's my, my face, and I called myself Andrew, and I said, my name is Andrew. I'm here from CSIS, and I need your help to a complete stranger, right? And then at night, I go out, and I, I see all my friends and family. I lie to everybody I know about where I work and what I do versus the strangers that I'm completely honest with about where I work, what I'm interested in and what I need their help with. So it's, it, it is that funny. We, it's not a clandestine service. You know, we're introducing ourselves as CSIS intelligence officers to Canadians, uh, you know, asking them for assistance, which is why I say it's important people know about CSIS because we are operating kind of overtly in town, in, a, in Canada.
That double life aspect you mentioned, I think, is interesting. I don't mean it to be dramatic, but double life in the sense of you weren't entirely forthright with people in your personal life about what you were doing. And it seemed like there wasn't actually a hard and fast policy that CSIS had on that. I mean, you mentioned, you know, people from CSIS being at your wedding and the idea that, you know, oh, that's the intelligence table with all the spies over there seems like something that, you know, wouldn't you wouldn't have in this. And I guess, I don't know if it's changed since then, but how hard and fast were the rules versus how much was really just left up to your discretion as an individual? It's There's a lot of discretion. I think that was a challenge, and I try to talk about it throughout the book, about you know who I'm telling, what I'm telling them. You know, I was dating and going out on dates and trying to, and I met my wife while I was working there. And at some point, I had to tell this, this woman I was dating that I actually worked for CSIS. I wasn't just kind of a government person when it came to uh, our relationship got serious and so you have to figure out okay well how said, how early you know is is appropriate or how late then you said well you've been lying to me for six months you know it, there's kind of this this balancing act uh about what we can say and obviously you know it's it's for people's protection like the the idea is that we're out in public talking to folks and we don't want everyone to know that we're CSIS because the people we're talking to are then uh, you know, uh, associated with CSIS and it's for their protection. That's why when we operate, might have different names and we don't, won't, I don't face, didn't have Facebook or Twitter because we didn't want people to be connected with me on social media because that would say, oh, why are they, you know, connected with so-and-so? Um, it was create a bit of, of, of a barrier and protection for those folks who were working with us, you know, to, to give yeah. them some, some protection, but it does create challenges in your life. I say, what did I put on my J-Date profile when I was trying to meet people? And if you put, I work for government in Ottawa, that gets a lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> so I had, you have to kind of play yeah. around with that, where you are and, and what you're writing. Yeah, I mean, I love it because I, I I don't know how I managed to find a woman that was in love with me and wanted to marry me, and I'm very grateful I did. But you had to, when you were dating, take the most interesting thing about you off the table, and you had to get women to fall for like a government bureaucrat in some nondescript office. And then once they got past that, then you can drop the interesting stuff on them. Yeah, although you know, sometimes it went well, and sometimes uh, I didn't tell a lot of people, but it was frustrating sometimes where I'm sitting at a date and I was like, I promise you I'm cool or much cooler than I'm <laughs> letting on. Yeah. Uh, but just seeing I work for the government and and trying to get their eyes to glaze over so I can change change the topic. Yeah, there's one part of the book where I found it quite interesting, and I don't know how many incidents you had like this, where you met someone at a party and you knew that they were going to be at the same place that you were later on for what was an undercover operation. And you had to like, you had to break your cover to them and say, okay, listen, I'm with CSIS. Don't talk to me when you see me later. Well, it happened, uh, you know, a few times, but the, the big one was an airport. I, I was having brunch with some people uh, who were in town and then I, I just came up and said, well, I'm, I'm traveling tonight. And I knew I was going to be at the airport working that night. And of course, if you see someone have lunch with them during the day and then see them at the airport, when I, they would say, well, why didn't you mention that you were going to be flying somewhere or what are you doing here? Where are you going? And I, I just couldn't have that interrupt the operation. Uh, so I had to pull them aside and say, look, you, you may see me tonight uh, you know, at the airport and this is why and some working. And, and if you do, you, just please don't come over and, and say anything but of course now I freak them right out because they're saying why are you you know why are you at the airport what do you what's wrong with my I said, nothing's wrong nothing's wrong but uh yeah just you know if you do see me please 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 don't don't uh don't come and talk to me and we can t we can talk about it later 
So in your career at CSIS, you did a lot of the community liaising that we were talking about earlier, and you also did special operations, which gets into the airport realm. But I also want to set expectations here. I think like the word overtime appears more in the book than the word gun does. So you're dealing with a lot of bureaucracy in this organization, and you're dealing with at times also uh, dealing with other agencies, someone maybe under a police investigation and also a CSIS investigation. How much was the administration and the bureaucracy of this really front and center in what you were trying to do, which was, you know, stop the bad guys? It's CSIS is a government organization, uh, part of the public service. It's a big bureaucratic uh, machine. And I, I don't say that in a, it's bad or that it's good. That's kind of what it is. We, we want our organizations to have some controls and oversight. And I was a part of that. One of the things uh, I wrote about in the book and I wanted to say was for the first two years of my career, I was one of those kind of behind the desk uh, human source policy uh, reviewers. Like I was an administrator, essentially part of that machine, uh, making sure that everybody was adhering to policy and following following the rules. So it's a huge part of your day-to-day -day existence there is managing that bureaucracy, getting plans approved, uh, getting invoices signed off on, and you know making sure that everything you're doing is kind of within the bounds and there are people who check up on it. I was, uh, when, I, when I watch, sometimes I watch a, a James Bond movie um, and I go, I can't imagine the paperwork that he would have to do to <laughs> blow that. If he blew that thing up or he had that weapon, I just, all my mind goes to is the forms that he would have to uh, fill out to do the missions that he was doing. So <laughs> it is it is ever yeah. present uh, in the mind. Well, you mentioned James Bond. So let, let's ask a, a question that I was going to ask at some point anyway. I was probably going to do it near the end, but you brought it up now. What's one thing that the movies get right? And what's one thing that the movies get spectacularly wrong? One thing, the, can I go reverse order up? Think sure, the movies sure. get right. The movies get wrong is it's not just one person out there running around. I think when I watch James Bond and, he, and he's doing surveillance and he's following somebody from you know an airport to their hotel and he does it all by himself without being detected. And I think the number of people that it takes to do things like that uh, or to coordinate special operations that he would do, it's such a team effort. And the Jason Bourne, the same thing, right? There's one guy, the super hyper competent individual that can go and take out large organizations. It's just not the case. Uh, and I hope that comes across in the book that I relied on people, that we had folks with different talents and skills and special operations, communications analysts, surveillance is a whole separate skill set that I didn't have that we that we needed. So this this idea of a team that comes together. Um, it's far more mission impossible than than James Bond and James uh, and Jason Bourne running around, and that uh, that it gets right. I mean, it's 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 all uh, it's all for fun. I wish it was more. You know, people sign up and go. I wish it was that suave and debonair and uh, and cool. But you know, look, I guess that that there are people out there that want to do harm. Like he was out there foiling foiling plots, and and maybe those are sensationalized. But we do. It's not single person running around. We do need people who are out there looking out for us. Uh, we do have threats that people find out there are threats out there, and then you get a team together and you go track them down. So as much as the methods, I guess, that they do um, are sensationalized and the threats may be sensationalized, um, we have spies for a reason. You know, we have people who are looking out for us in the shadows, uh, doing some dirty work, not that dirty work, um, because there are real threats out there. So maybe that's. Uh, maybe that's a stretch, but what it gets right is 
they exist. Um, maybe not as cool, but. There was a line in the book that jumped out at me that I, I wanted to get your thoughts on. You, you say, uh, we didn't have threat reduction, mitigation, or disruption powers at that time. And you were talking about how CSIS's mandate is about collecting information, analyzing it, retaining it. It wasn't about intervention. It wasn't about we've got to get in and, and stop this guy. And the at the time, I know this changed slightly with uh, Stephen Harper's government, but I'm curious if you can speak, I mean, insofar as you're able to speak about it, about how that played out in, in real life, that idea that, you know, you were seeing something and you couldn't necessarily do anything about it and you didn't have a mandate to do anything about it. Exactly. And, and there, so the mandate was to investigate, so investigate threats uh, and advise government, essentially. And then we would investigate threats to Security Canada and advise the appropriate government. Sometimes that's the RCMP, you know, in a very controlled way. And sometimes that is... Uh, other parts of government. But so every time you go to talk to someone, every time I knocked on a door, I had to be there to investigate. But you'd see sometimes someone would tweet something or or you'd hear something and you'd want to just go and tell the person like, hey, knock it out, like knock it off. I, if, I, if I can see this, a lot of other intelligence services can probably see this too and you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. But that'd be considered disruption. Right. If I was doing it solely for the to try to stop them from from doing it, and that was not part of the mandate. So you could I mean, you could go to the person and say the person's parents say, hey, you know, in an investigative asking a questions, uh, have you seen what your child is posting online? You know, is mm. this something that you condone? Is this something that you're as, as you know, investigating these threats to find out in a, in a roundabout way to say, can you help us you know, help us knock this off? Um, but you know the, the threats became very dynamic. If people are back then, remember, it was foreign fighters. So if somebody says, I'm getting on a plane uh, in a couple hours, well, you can advise government, but maybe there's things that we need to be able to do a little quicker uh, in a controlled way. And that's where those, those change. So I think it was, it was a challenge when you have this information and you're not able to act on it because of the mandate. Um, and sometimes you know required some 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 quick acting um, from somebody. Um, so that's what they did. And, and I wasn't around for that to see how it's played out. I'm super curious, <laughs> I guess, uh, where that's been used and if it's been used effectively because, you know, I could see the benefits of it, right? Which is, well, can we, can we cut out a few layers here and just do something very quickly to, to, to stop yeah. something bad from happening? When you were in the service, how well did Canada manage the interagency aspect of it? I mean, it would be mainly with the RCMP, I'm assuming, but perhaps some local police departments. How well did they play, if you will? It was it was a struggle at times. I, I wasn't very involved, but I found it from from anecdotally, it kind of changed uh, regionally. You know, if you had a good relationship on the ground. Uh, with your local contacts, if you were able to share in a very limited way, you know, we were, CSIS was often con considered a black hole of information. No one liked to play with us because we weren't able to share a lot of things and people assumed rightly or wrongly that we had more information that we were not able to, to give up. And our, our concern was, well, we don't want to get in, get in the way of an RCMP investigation. You know, if we were to hand over information that that would not help them, that would cause problems. So there's, there's a tension there. Sometimes that's healthy and sometimes it's not. I, I, you know, I wasn't involved in those conversations at a very high level. I think if it's one thing from the book, you know, I was more on the ground day to day and, and those conversations be somebody else would comment on them. But my impression, it was 
very much dependent on on you know relationships and uh, how people are able to act uh, and talk often geographically right if you're dealing with your local rcmp contacts you had police called on you though yeah like, like that's the the irony is that you're there from the government and someone says i don't trust this government guy i want the other government guy to come <laughs> well that, that's it you know I, and i'm not the only one it happens all the time if you call you can imagine the day of cra scams and window duct cleaners i call some of the phone i say hello my name is andrew i'm calling from CSIS, and i'd like to meet you for coffee and i can't tell you why over the phone i promise you i will explain everything i'll show you my badge when we when we meet for coffee at whenever it is like you know, obviously people are healthily skeptical of that. Um, so you would have police get called on you. If you're knocking a door, and I talk about in the book, I'm knocking a door late night. I had to, it was very, very important. I had to speak to the person. I knew they were home. They were not answering their door. And I thought that they couldn't hear me because the laundry machine's on. So I'm banging on this door. I'm banging loudly. And they call the police. Four police cars come, come down the street. And of course, I just show my badge to the police, and we have a big uh, powwow in the uh, in, in the uh, in the driveway. And the garage door opens up, and this very frightened guy who's had someone bounding on his door for an hour, uh, he looks out, and the police turn to him. You got to talk to this guy. He said it's important. You know, now he's what did I do? What did I do? I thought the police were here to help me. So, yeah, they were very helpful. We used to if people didn't believe who we were, we would sometimes ask the police to vouch for us. So uh, at the ground level. Like, you know, you're working as a team, um, but we're trying to be discreet. So if we can avoid if we can avoid that kind of attention, uh, we, we try to do that. I think one of the largest criticisms that I see, and it's a criticism I've made in, in some ways in the past of Canadian intelligence, is that there seems to be an awful lot of reliance on American intelligence. Uh, one notable example is Aaron Driver, the uh, young man from not far from where I live, Strathroy, Ontario, who uh, was intercepted. And this one did sound like a very dramatic, movie-like interception at the last minute, but it was a tip from the FBI that came to, through Canada to the RCMP. And on one hand, you want that cooperation and collaboration. But on the other hand, is this Canada getting lucky time and time again when we get tips from foreign agencies that are picking up stuff that we're not? Well, I'll tell you, Canada, I think we punch above our weight for, for what we are and, and what our mandate is and that we're a domestic intelligence service. People love working with us. Uh, we often get asked from the Americans and uh, others for, for assistance um, you know, with uh, with their investigation. So we're working very collaboratively, but we don't have a foreign intelligence service, right? So that is a limitation. Uh, we are able to do some things abroad and collect information abroad as it pertains to threats to Canada. But you know, many of the countries have a foreign domestic. And I, and, you know, I don't even know if we, if we need one, if we need to, if our mandate allows for us to do it in a, a sufficient way. But being next door to the Americans with this huge, you know, the, with what they have, uh, we're always going to be net you know, importers of information. We're just, we're not going to compete in that way. So I don't know if, if we should actually try, but yeah, we're, we're in the, we're in the five eyes community. We're very closely with the Americans, the British, Australians, and the, and the New Zealanders. Um, but just by scale and size and our limited um, footprint abroad, we're just that's just the way it's kind of going to be uh, and we benefit greatly from our relationship with the americans um you know they they obviously do have a lot of coverage and are happy to you know share and work with us 
Let's talk about some of the fun stuff here. Your your special operations chapters, I, I thought, were really, really exciting to read. And one of the notable things that really jumped out is you, you talked about the training you went through when you were going into the intelligence officer program at first and then later on in, in special operations. And I can't remember the exact wording, but the trainer basically said to you, we're not trying to trip you up. The real world has a, its way of doing that. And, and you talked about on a training exercise, like a cat escaping a house and at another point dog poop was like interfering with it and, and this was not like uh, you being put through an obstacle course deliberately life just does this and I was wondering if you could talk about that how there are certain things that just happen in the field that you couldn't plan you couldn't script and you couldn't necessarily have a plan for if you tried uh, if, if I could go back and answer the James Bond question, which is one thing to get wrong or all these shows get wrong is that the plans go as scripted the plans never go as scripted they it something always happens. And I, and I see in the book, so our trainer, our grizzled veteran of you know, hundreds of special operations and special operations for those listening is when, when a target reaches, uh, individual reaches a, a threshold of investigation, uh, warrants, we were allowed to apply for warrants to do what we call technical surveillance, uh, which would be maybe implanted. James Bond devices. never needed a warrant. Jack I, know, I got paperwork. <laughs> I mean, that, I think about that all the time, but we then get approvals to do more, um, We'd say uh, uh, you know, technical surveillance or close access. We break into places, uh, try to plant devices, look for information in, in places where we individuals would otherwise expect a privacy or that we would not otherwise have the opportunities to go. And so that's what we were doing as we were going to do those things. And of course, as I said, you know, you plan this, this, this operation. Okay, it's going to be late at night and everyone's going to be asleep. And we're going to get out of the van. And as we, we took two steps out of the van in training and my, my colleague stepped in a huge pile of dog poo. And you obviously cannot break into a house and leave the smell of dog poo all over the place when you weren't supposed to be there in the first place. So you have to go back in the van and trade shoes. But our trainer said, we, we are not going to mess with you. We're not going to place any arbitrary tricks, traps, anything like that, because we know life finds a way and things happen you don't expect. And it, every single time, if it was uh, people falling asleep, in the in their front rooms where you think they're going to be asleep but they fell asleep uh where they can see an operational where you're where you're supposed to be operating you know neighbor a neighbor's still up at three in the morning watching the, the godfather rerun uh well into the night or smokers people out late walking their dogs and smoking constantly garbage day people coming out um where you don't expect it it was all the time and so that is one thing that you don't you don't see is everyone waiting in a van for an extra hour for the, the neighbor to fall to sleep or the dog to finish going to the bathroom so you can conduct a national security investigation. You talk about overtime and a lot of money uh, racked up waiting for us in vans uh, while we waited for people to go to sleep. I don't know if there is an answer to this or if it depends on, on the person running the operation, but is there a way to measure whether it's worth the risk in real time when things are changing or is it really like, is there a standardized way of doing that? Or is it basically you have to go with your gut? Yeah, it's, you kind of lay out what your, the, let's say the acceptable level of risk or what your concerns are. And you talk about this in advance and then you're, you're playing around within those parameters, right? Which is, we think we need this much time. We have this much time. So it's going to be okay. We won't get caught in the morning. And then your, your time window narrows where, oh, we had to start late. We're really going to bump up against it. 
you know, can, and, and you're doing a lot of that on, on the fly. And I, I say, it's all about decision-making. Um, when the plans go wrong, how are you able to adjust um, accordingly? So we think we would have situations where we, we think that this person parks their car here every night, every night they park their car here, every night they park. And then the day we show up, the car is parked you know, a few, uh, a few steps over and it's a little closer to a parking attendant or a light that was not where we, you know, was not there. And so you have to say, well, does this impact our risk assessment? Does it impact our the cost benefit analysis? Can we come back tomorrow? Is this our one opportunity? You are, you're having those conversations uh, all the time. And that's the, that's the tricky part of the special operations. It's not, um, you know, you do all your planning and when you throw your plan out the window, would you have enough to fall back on to be confident in your decisions? One thing as well that the book explains movies get wrong is that it's not one person that has all of the skill sets. It's not one person that's picking the lock, that's hacking the phone, that's planting the bug and, and doing all of that. And I, I like the way you described how each of these specialists on your team had their own specialty. You know, this one guy was uh, great at picking locks and someone else was great at doing this and, and so on. And and that was also interesting because these people aren't always as suave and debonair as other people are like some of them are very rough around the edges it seems like and and you've got to be a babysitter in a way which I, I found interesting because you're talking about people that are doing something very risky very skilled they're obviously capable competent people but uh, they still need their handheld at times yes first of all i'll say the extreme competence in their unique uh, and specific fields so with locks we have a guy that's all he did he picked locks all day practice picking locks in the evening if we need that's to get his name room, his name was locks we <laughs> called him locks that was it was not creative and he was locks and he did locks and he could pick a lock while he was talking to you about what he was having for lunch that day and that was not a skill set that i had um but so the, the the relationship was he just focuses on picking locks so we're walking up to a front door you know he's that's all he's doing. And I'm the one as a security person, I'm the one looking around to make sure that he can focus on his job. So a lot of it is this, the, those specialists who are specialists, they, that is what they do. And generalists like myself are the ones who are responsible for security to ensure that they can do their job uh, securely, that they can do their job uninterrupted. And if something goes wrong, they're counting on me to let them know, you know grab, grab locks or, or give them a, give them a squeeze and say, we got to go or, or, you know, be quiet for a moment and want to make sure we're okay. And he, you know, relies on me for that. So there is that the joke. Yeah, we don't let the techs, we call them all kind of bundle up as techs. The techs don't talk to anybody. Uh, we do the, we do the talking and you just, you just do focus on your job. And that there's a, there's a healthy tension there um, with operations because they know that I can't do what they can do. And I always want them to do it faster and a little bit better. Um, so there's, there's always a special operations tension, uh, when we, when we do these things. And I think that, well, it was one thing when I wrote the book, I, I was very hopeful that the text didn't, didn't rebel against me, that I, that I captured that relationship well without, uh, you know, getting to say, well, come on, man, you, you couldn't do anything we could do. Don't, don't always tell us our gear doesn't work. Um, yeah. you could never, you can do anything. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about 
when you're planning an operation? Because there were, I mean, one incident you talk about in the book, or not incident, but one event is having to go and buy a particular car. So you buy a a used car and stuff like that. And and a, a lot of people would not necessarily have thought about this, that it's not just the two hours you might be on a street, but in many cases, days, weeks, possibly months of of planning. And I I was thinking about this. You would have to have, presumably, like an entire other identity when you're going out and procuring this stuff. You need to be in a particular mindset. Why are you buying a car? Why are you buying this, you know, construction outfit or something like that? It it kind of depends on what you're you're getting. If you're going to, to, to... Costco or Best Buy and just buying something that's innocuous, but you're going to use it for a special operation. But if you're, and if you're going to procure a vehicle, um, so, so for example, uh, yeah, we're trying to get a car. If, if you're going to do a job, the techs in, in their defense, you know, they want to practice. They might have 10 minutes to do their operation. Mm-hmm. They don't want to walk up to a car without having ever seen what the inside looks like uh, or you know, so we try to get them practice vehicles or things that they can test on so they're not walking up a cold to that environment. So we'd have to go and if it could be buy a, a car or borrow a car or rent a car, or if go, one case I was going to go to my brother and borrow his car. Uh, so the CSIS budget is going to be very high if there's a year where they've got to break into a bunch of Mercedes and... Uh... <laughs> I mean, big problems. The uh, That is it. We... And we try to do it. Look, we're we bureaucratic organization. We have budgets, and you can't go. Hey, you know what? I just want to go and take this take this car and uh, and take it apart, and we'll throw it out. I, I'm sure our budget's there. One thing the movies don't get is the budget constraints. So if we can borrow something, if we can go and ask somebody, in some cases, you're going as CSIS. Hi, my name is Andrew. I'm here from CSIS. Can I borrow your car for a week? I promise to give it back to you. I can't tell you what it's for. Uh, I you know I I can't give you a piece of paper that says uh you know andrew from ceases has my car i just need you to need your help need you to trust me and i promise you to get it back in in one piece and people do like the, the other neat thing and i and i hope i came across in the book is that we were constantly asking people for ridiculous things like can i borrow your car for four can days can i borrow your house can i borrow your house um yeah. i need your house i need you to get out of your house you cannot be there when I'm there running this operation. I will I will pay for your dinner and a movie. I don't have much more money than that. And I really appreciate it. <laughs> and people would do it. And people would do it. It's an amazing thing. So that's that that also is really appreciated. I I, I wanted people who cannot in any way, um, you know, they're not supposed to say that they let CSIS borrow their house or CSIS borrow their car. Um, or that they talk to CSIS anyway, they also don't get acknowledged uh, for their help. And I think, you know, it's okay to say, hey, thanks. You know, we really, really appreciate that. It's extremely helpful. Um, it's legitimate. Now, I, I hope people on the uh, listening don't go out and start pretending to be CSIS and make a fake badge and run around and go stealing cars. Um, you know, there are ways to verify. But yeah, we were constantly asking the public for assistance in kind of unique and funny ways, and they would come through. Um, it's like heartwarming when I think about all the people that asked for help and that they did it. I know you were given an alias, which was what you operated as, not just publicly, but even internally at CSIS with your colleagues, as I understood it. And I'm curious how sort of integrated that was. Like, did you have a driver's license and credit cards under that name as well? Or was it just your business card and your badge? I I can't get, I can't get too much into that. Um, But what I can say is that occasionally I would use uh, a working name and alias once again to create some distance from the people who 
that I would meet that they, if it should ever get out that I was, uh, you know, an intelligence officer, that they would have some distance from that, that they couldn't, you know, connect with me online and those types of things. Um, you know, how that kind of worked is, I say, I probably get in a lot of trouble for, for talking about that. And, and the, so I can't get too much into it. But I said, I, my name is Andrew. I was mostly known as Andrew. You know, it's a pretty generic, I knock on a door and say, my name is Andrew. I'd have a different last name. But it, it wasn't overly elaborate and where I could operate them under my real name, I did. I don't like lying to people. So I didn't have a real complicated backstory. If someone said, are you you know, married? Said, yeah. You know, do you have kids? Yeah. I, I just found it easier to keep my story straight than this other Andrew was this person and I was this person. And so, you know, that when I would meet people, they might not know my real name, but you know, they know most things, uh, most other things about me. And, and cause you're, you're trying to build rapport. You're trying to ask people for assistance. Um, you know, I, I felt that was, that was important. The name was kind of the, um, once again, for kind of protecting myself and, and protecting them as well. Why couldn't you include your alias in the book? That was the one thing that jumped out at me because you're no longer working there. You're obviously publicly acknowledging you worked at CSIS. Why was that still not something you were able to or comfortable sharing i thought a lot about it uh actually and at the end of the day i just kind of made a decision to take it out it, this was the first thesis memoir um written by intelligence officer about working there and you know maybe down the road someone will do it and the next person will do it and everyone else will do it uh i, I was trying to be maybe maybe cautious in, in that respect not knowing you know there's no there's no formal uh, way to vet a memoir. So in CIA, they have, you can submit it to a review agency. I think most other services do, we don't. So as much as I was trying to get some feedback from Mex colleagues and, and others, you know, I, I, I didn't know if I was getting in trouble. I joke at the end of the book, I said, uh, my hope is that I, I don't uh, uh, go to jail for this. And I, I didn't want to go to my publisher and say it's a two book deal. And the second, the second book is from prison. Your jailhouse memoirs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, maybe there I erred, I, I erred in the side of caution. There are absolutely people out there who have met me who, look, I was a candidate in 2018. Right. So I left thesis and I worked under my alias. And then there were posters of me and my real name in subways around my uh, neighborhood. So yes, people would know me by my alias. There are people out there who would, um, I just, I said, that was, that was one thing I thought, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna test it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about in our, our closing moments here, your, your post-CSIS life. Obviously you went into politics. I know you run a security uh, consulting agency right now. Uh, what are the practical uh, guidelines or uh, what's the practical advice you'd give people about how to protect themselves? Not just, I mean, I, I don't want to over-dramatize here and say that we all have to protect ourselves against a terror threat any day, but, but you know what I mean? There are threats out there, cyber threats, even just in general, uh, people that might be up to no good around us. How can people protect themselves? It's a, it's a great question. And obviously um, there are kind of specific, people have unique specific challenges and happy to, to discuss them. I think on the cyber front, we have to stay vigilant. So let me start with this. There are absolutely threats and risks out there. I think as Canadians, sometimes we get in this mindset that, oh, we live in a safe country. What does anyone want from me? You know, I, I'm, I have nothing of any value. If they hack me, it's okay. Well, no, um, we all have things of value. We have assets of value. We have that your home broken into, they might not take things of value. That's incredibly uh, makes you feel violated. Um, so we we, we want to maintain our um, our safety and security. You have things of value, cyber wise. If if you are compromised, think about everybody you're connected to. 
on Facebook, LinkedIn, every, you know, the most, uh, I'd say technically illiterate colleague, friend, family member you have is now vulnerable to any scammer who's going to use your accounts to get to them. So first, let's all acknowledge that, that we have assets, we have information, we have things of value uh, that are important. So, so identify what those things are. If you're online banking, make sure your passwords, like that we have appropriate security in place around them. So identify your critical assets that you have them, you know, assess the security you have around those assets, and then be vigilant that you are appropriately secured, right? And so you don't have to go overboard. Um, I'm certainly one that says we can't, it, it, we can't make it overly complicated, but we do have things. We should do a base level protection around those things. Some people have more, some people have, uh, you know, varying degrees. Companies, absolutely. Um, so that's that's kind of the broad strokes what I do. I, so I joke in my, I used to break into places and now I help companies uh, identify and secure those vulnerabilities that I used to exploit when I was out there trying to get it into places. And so uh, if you, anyone wants to, to chat about that, what those vulnerabilities are, we're happy to, happy to do it. And people think they don't have threats. Look, we do this stuff too. And we're the good guys. So you better believe there are bad guys out there who are targeting us for a number of things that we need to keep ourselves safe. I, I don't think it came up on the book. Uh, and, and I'm confident this might be one of those I can't talk about us, but I'll, I'll go wild anyway. Alarm systems. This was something that I'm assuming there was a, a way to get around. But how useful are they as an individual who has one in their home? Well, they they're not uh they're definitely useful um we talk about security we talk and i'm gonna get the the, the five d's it's uh what's it um uh, deter detect delay uh, dif disrupt and defeat so all these systems that we have are cameras that would that help deter they help detect you know, alarm systems definitely uh, detect so that you can then disrupt an activity in place. Like these are all very, very helpful. Certainly things, you know, every security, every, even locks, even you know, with the toughest lock can be picked or broken. It just might take a lot longer. So if you have a more secure lock in there, then one, somebody with more skill and experience is going to be needed to break into it than your average person who just kick the door in. Um, and that delay you're trying to, to create by having better, you know, having an alarm system needs to be defeated, having a tougher lock, is going to give you more time to respond. So these, these things all work together, cameras too. You get broken into, maybe the cameras didn't deter the person, but you can go review them afterwards and, and give them police to defeat and, and get your stuff back. So you, layering these, these tools around, uh, it's just a way to keep, to, to work together to keep safe. So I, I wouldn't say, uh, useless and on their own, obviously useful, but they need to work for a reason. I don't know how well or if I would fit into a, a CISA special operations unit, but the one skill I do have that I, I wish more people did was just generally a situational awareness. I find a lot of people just when they're walking down a street just are not paying attention to what's around them. Whereas for me, I'm probably paying attention too much to what's going on around me that I'm like, you know, barely talking to my wife if I'm ever walking down the street because I'm just like, oh, what's that guy? What's that? I hear a car. I feel the person. But I, I do think that's missing in a lot of cases, especially in the AirPod age. You know, people are walking around just not at all aware that there is a world around them uh, absolutely i mean that's what we try to take advantage of that the people's uh, just not paying attention or you know working in plain sight you, you really your cover is that you belong there 
and people look around, they you look like you belong and they don't take any notice of you. you know, going into going into buildings, right? Just looking like you belong in that building. Uh, people take a look, oh, that person's wearing a, a blazer. They must, that must be uh, okay. And I'll hold the door for that person. Or like there is a situation, you know, tailgating, um, you know, walking with purpose, not signing in places. Uh, absolutely. We took, I say take advantage of it, but we used that. Obviously that was a big part of, of what we were doing. I, I mentioned the book, it's like car alarms. Speaking of alarms, you know, I, I set up numerous car alarms in my day. And the first one is terrifying. You walk up, so locks would say, he said, said to me, you know, Andrew, I can, I can turn it off, but I can't stop it from going off. So it's going to go off. Your instinct is going to be to run away, but you can't because people look out their window and they see alarm go off and someone running. That's going to look bad. If they see two guys standing there, it's going to look like we're fumbling with our keys and it's going to look totally normal. Right? So yeah, we would try to plan what looks normal, what doesn't. So the first time, sure enough, like the car alarm goes off, you just every every party it wants to to bolt. Um, the third, fourth, fifth time, a little more, you a little more comfortable. You know, the locks can turn it off and whatnot. But that's that's kind of the awareness. You're you're taking advantage of. Oh, the guy set off an alarm. It's three in the morning. Should they be there? Should they not? Um, oh, they look normal. I'll go back to smoking my cigarette or uh, walking my dog. You know. Well, it's a fascinating book. I'm, I'm glad you wrote it. I'm glad you're in a position where you're able to talk about it. I was never here. My true Canadian spy story of coffees, code names, and covert operations in the age of terrorism. And we didn't get into it, but I was never here. You literally wore T-shirts that said that on operations, and you bought the shirt from Winners, as I understand it. That's right. I under my under my yeah. uh, hooded sweatshirt. But that was my uh, yeah. That was my lucky T-shirt. And my wife knew when I was going out late at night, uh, sometimes you go out just to see a neighborhood. But when I put on my luggage, she's like, oh, you're working tonight. You know, that was a, <laughs> a, a bit of a giveaway. My I was never here t-shirt. You know, no one will ever, you know, no get caught and you know, get home. Uh, okay. So yes, that's why we named the, named the book. I was never here. I love it. Well, it was a great book. Andrew Kirsch, thank you so much for coming on today. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. That was Andrew Kirsch, the book you can see up on the screen there. I was never here. My true Canadian spy story of coffees, code names, and covert operations in the age of terrorism. So much that we didn't get a chance to get to. So I hope you do buy the book and read the book and enjoy the book as I did. That does it for us. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is the Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.